All right, Genesis chapter 49 is where we left off in our study through Genesis. If you remember at this point, we kind of left off right in the middle of uh, Jacob, um, in a sense, sort of on his deathbed, he recognizing that his time is now uh, very short. It tells us right at the beginning of chapter 49, verse 1, that Jacob called his sons and said, Gather together that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. So, again, here's this father, uh, man of God. He recognizes that his time is now expiring. There's that sense and a discernment within him that he's within the last short window of his time here upon this earth. And he now gathers together his uh, 12 sons, brings the family around his bedside. And as we began to look at last week in the uh, sort of halfway through chapter 49, we saw he began to, in essence, kind of just prophesy over his different sons. And he one by one began to look at them and uh, in the presence of all of them, just speak prophetically things, no doubt, obviously, that the Holy Spirit was revealing to them things that he recognized about them. Again, he knew his sons. The Spirit of God as a father gave him discernment and interesting distinct awareness, it seems, things about each one of his children. And he was just prophesying over them of aspects of their character, things that they had done in the past, remember, that he brought to the surface, as well as, it seems, things that he just had foresight into what would ultimately come about in their lives down the road. And as we left off in chapter 49, verse 21, we came to the end of Naphtali. The last two sons he now speaks about prophetically here on his deathbed is Joseph and Benjamin. So he's speaking in regards to Joseph in verse 22, says about Joseph to him, Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a well, and his branches run over the wall. So as he speaks about Joseph, not so much it seems about just what Joseph will become. It seems that he initially speaks about Joseph in regards to what he already is. That that's exactly what Joseph was. Joseph, his life had become extremely fruitful, and he pictures him in this uh, illustration of like a, a fruitful uh, bough of a plant, a, a a branch that's extending because it has had great growth kind of, you know, over a, a wall and so forth with tremendous fruitfulness and speaking about Joseph's life. And again, uh, that's an exact picture of what Joseph's life became. And keep in mind, that's what Joseph's life was despite all the problems and issues. I mean, if there was anybody that should have, rather than been maybe fruitful, you know, felt like that he had the right to be embittered or to be dry and just shriveled up. And uh, it should have been Joseph. I mean, he didn't have a lot of the advantages and blessings and things that many others around him did in his environment and circumstances. He was uh, put into a foreign land. He was taken away from his family. He didn't have a support system. Again, he didn't have a, a, a written revelation like you and I do of the entire canon of scripture. He didn't have the indwelling Holy Spirit. He, I mean, he faced one disappointment after another and difficulty after difficulty, mistreatment and problems. And yet Joseph still, because the good hand of God was upon him and because his roots were sunk down deep into the things of God and he had a relationship with God, that sap and the flow of the water of God's Spirit continued to pour into his life, and he drew from the resources of God and remained a very fruitful man. He remained very fruitful in his life for one primary reason, and that was very simply just his individual and personal relationship with God. In a sense, it reminds us of kind of like what Psalm 1 says, you know, blessed is that man who delights in the law of the Lord. And it goes on to talk about he shall be like a tree planted by rivers of water, bringing forth fruit in its season. And again, that same idea there of, of like, you know, that tree that's planted by the river and therefore it's able to put its roots over to where the source of water is and it's a fruitful tree. Jesus in John 15 picks up this same idea when he talks about discipleship and the importance of staying connected to him in John 15. Remember when he talks about how you know, if you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. And he says, but apart from me, you can do nothing. And this was, this was the testimony of Joseph. He just was a man who abided in his relationship with God. He stood connected with God. Circumstances were what they were. 
They were difficult, they were trying, but he remained a fruitful individual very simply because of that personal connection that he had with God. And here his father speaks of this in regards to who he was, a fruitful bough. He says, someone who was like a fruitful bough by a well, his branches running over the wall. But notice verse 23, he also speaks of some of what Joseph experienced. He says, the archers have bitterly grieved him and shot at him uh, and hated him. But his bow remained in strength and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. For there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. So again, here he was a fruitful man. He had a fruitful life because of his relationship with God. But because of that, also what came together with that was, it seems, antagonism and opposition. And he speaks in verse 24, excuse me, verse 23 of how he pictures archers bitterly grieving him and therefore shooting arrows at him, again, trying to pierce him, trying to wound him and to hurt him. Uh, and again, as we look at this, it's just a reminder to us that when when we begin to live a fruitful life in regards to our relationship with God and the fruit of God's spirit begins to be produced in our life and we begin to really seek to live a fruitful life, uh, together with that, guess what? Uh, there are going to be arrows uh, and shots that are going to be fired into our life. Again, Paul told Timothy, all those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And as we seek to live fruitfully for the Lord, uh, that in some ways is going to instigate uh, shots and arrows being launched at us from the enemy. Remember what Ephesians chapter 6 says? Uh, it tells us to take up the shield of faith by which we may extinguish the flaming what? darts or arrows of the evil one and, and that's what the enemy is going to do and whether it's through things that people say that are critical or cruel or hurtful to you know cut down our intention to walk with the lord or to mock our faith or to question our, our moral convictions or, or just nasty cruel things one of the the, the most fundamental weapons of the enemy is through the tongue. It's it's through the mouth. You know, we, we see it in the book of Nehemiah where they come on the scene and, and as a work of God is beginning and the enemy is there questioning and mocking and trying to cause fear and intimidation. Uh, and, and this is just a part of the process. And that was true for Joseph. You know, his brothers hated him, remember? So they said cruel, mean things to him. Uh, it was their words that got him sold off into Egypt. It was the lying words of Potiphar's wife that caused him to get thrown into prison. So, so many times it was the words and the arrows that were fired against him in painful ways that caused a lot of the problems in his life. But again, though the arrows may be launched against us, the important thing is, is that we don't fire back. That's what the enemy wants us to do. The enemy wants us to put down our shield of faith and to pull out our arrows and crank our bow and, and let loose and start to fire back. And, and, and Joseph never did that. He continued to just remain in strength he says but his bow remained in strength and the arms of his hands were made strong again god strengthened him notice it says the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty god of jacob and again where does our strength come from his arms were made strong his hands were made strong in the midst of the battle and conflicts that he faced in his own life and notice it was because the hands of the mighty god were were on his hands strengthening him. And again, when you get weary in the battle, when your hands feel weak and, and, and you're struggling, the wonderful thing is, is as you stay connected to God, God can come alongside and he can strengthen your hands in the battle. He can continue to help you in the process and uphold you. And here Jacob even reflects upon the character of God, calling him the mighty God of Jacob. He then refers to him in verse 24 as well as the shepherd. And that's the first direct reference we have uh, to God, calling him a shepherd, and it becomes a picture throughout the Bible. Many a times, this is a picturesque representation of God as a shepherd, again, leading his sheep, caring for his sheep. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Eventually, it culminates in Jesus, John 10, who says, I am the good shepherd, and, and this picture of God. And to me, it's one of my most favorite uh, pictures of the nature of God, God as a shepherd. Uh, as we think about everything that a shepherd does, and Jacob and the men of Israel were aware of that because that's what they did. They tended flocks, and they understood what a shepherd did. A shepherd guarded and protected the sheep. The shepherd fed and made sure the sheep were nourished. 
The shepherd made sure that he led the sheep into to green pastures and, and guarded the sheep from the wolf. And, and, and when the shepherd saw that a sheep was even wandering, the shepherd even went and did whatever is necessary to bring the sheep uh, back on course. And, of course, this is all a picture of, of what God does for us. He's a shepherd. And also the first reference here in verse 24 to God as a stone or a rock. And we see that picture pointed out many times about God. And when we think of a rock, what do we think about? To me, I envision stability, strength, you know, something that's immovable, a strong foundation, that God is our rock, he's our refuge, that we can build our lives upon him. Jesus talks about in the Gospels how we should build our lives upon the rock by listening and taking heed to his commandments and obeying them and what a wonderful thing that God is a rock in our lives. I love what the psalmist says, Lord, when my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. And how wonderful that we face things, you deal with challenges, I go through things. At times we feel overwhelmed and distressed, but there is a rock of strength and stability that we can build our lives upon. And when everything around us is shaking, that we can go and rest our faith and, and gain our footing again by just standing upon the stable rock of the Lord that's underneath us to uphold us and support our lives. Verse 25, he then goes on to say to Joseph, by the God of your father who will help you. Again, notice God as our help. And he says, God's the one who will help you. And by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings from heaven above with blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb, the blessings of your father have excelled the blessings of my ancestors up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. These shall be upon the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him who was separate from his brothers. So again, verse 25 and 26, you have multiple references there. Again, just he's prophetically pronouncing in faith and just asking that God's blessing would just rest upon the hand of his son Joseph, that from every source and direction, from above, below, uh, you know, in every arena, that the blessing of God would be upon his life and his crops and his fertility and in everything about his family and his personal experience. Verse 27, he then comes to the last, the youngest of the sons, Benjamin, and he says regarding Benjamin, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. So I don't know what was better. We saw that, you know, earlier on, one of the sons got called a donkey. I don't know what's better. You know, again, this is all happening in front of one another. So, uh, you know, one son gets referred to as a donkey. But, you know, Benjamin gets the title of a wolf. But notice he mentions a ravenous wolf. And this must have sounded interesting, keep in mind, because Benjamin's the youngest of the sons, he was the, the, the favored son of Jacob when Joseph was thought to be dead for 22 years. And, and you almost picture that Benjamin probably was kind of this tender, you know, uh, kind of younger son. You know, he had a close relationship with his father. And now his father refers to him as a ravenous wolf. He says, in the morning he shall devour the prey, and then at night he shall go out and divide the spoil. Now, again, keep in mind, Jacob is saying these things prophetically the spirit of god is directing him to say things that he does not in the given moment fully understand but the spirit of god is directing him to convey and communicate you know peter when he talks about the ministry of prophecy in the new testament speaks of how when the old testament prophets were speaking things in regards to christ as they spoke about the sufferings that the Messiah would experience and the glories that would follow, Peter says they became aware that they were speaking of things that were yet to come and they realized the Spirit of God is directing us to say things that pertain to a time and, and things about the Messiah that we don't even fully understand. Now you and I on this side of the cross, we understand the balance of the suffering servant, Jesus' first coming and his death and his crucifixion, and that Jesus will come a second time as a glorious king. But Peter talks about how at times when prophecy is coming forth, how even the Old Testament prophets spoke things that they didn't even fully understand. And sometimes when the gift of prophecy is at work and the, the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is bringing forth prophetic words, uh, the Spirit of God may lead us to say things at times, to convey things 
as he gives us insight and awareness to speak forth the word of God about something, we may not fully understand all of what it entails. Uh, the spirit of God may just be directing us to convey and to communicate something. What we have to remember is God sees everything. So when you speak prophecy, someone's just speaking forth the word of God, but you're talking about God who dwells outside of time, and God sees everything all at once. So to God, everything is present. So God, it's no problem for God to speak of something that would happen three years from now or 300 years from now as if it's presently already something that has happened or is go because God already, is, God already sees and is aware of that. So God can convey those things from his standing and speak them through. So again, he says these things in regards to Benjamin. My point being, in, in regards to as you follow out the line of Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin, they become very successful warriors. They become a tribe that's very brave. They become very strong warriors. Together with that, they also do become a tribe, the tribe of Benjamin, that is known for becoming very cruel and ferocious. If you read Judges, uh, I believe chapters 19, 20, 21, and that range there, you, you can read some uh, illustrations of inc incredible cruelty that comes out of the tribe uh, of Benjamin. Remember, ultimately, King Saul, the first king of Israel, comes from the tribe of Benjamin. And what did Saul become? Saul became a ferocious, vicious man who was not only just, you know, cruelly treating people from his leadership position and just, you know, mistreating everyone around him and abusing his authority, but was he was trying to kill David. He was trying to, you know, multiple times snuff out David's life. Ultimately from the tribe of Benjamin also comes who? Saul of Tarsus, who ultimately becomes Paul the Apostle. But do you remember what Saul of Tarsus was like? Before God converted him, he was exactly what you read here. He was a ravenous wolf <laughs> who was devouring prey, going after Christians, trying to destroy them. So again, these words coming forth prophetically in relation to Benjamin and the lineage that then would come from his line, describing what would ultimately unfold. Verse 28, it then says in summarization, all these were the, notice, 12 tribes of Israel, and this is what their father spoke to them. And he blessed them, and he blessed each one according to his own Blessings. So again, there was prophetic utterance going forth, and in some sense, some of these things was pronouncing a blessing and in regards to what was spoken. Perhaps we have all recorded that was said. Maybe there were other things that were said in regards to blessings that we don't have recorded as well. Verse 29, then he charged them, and he said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre, back notice, in the land of Canaan, the land where they came from. And that cave was that which, verse 30, Abraham, his grandfather, had bought with the field of Ephron the Hittite as a possession for a burial place. Back in Genesis chapter 23, we read about that transaction where Abraham was looking for a burial place for his wife Sarah and ultimately for his other ancestors, and he made that transaction there to buy this particular field and the, the, the cave as well for a burial place. Verse 31, he says, there they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried my grandparents, he says. And there they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. So that's where they buried my mom and dad, Jacob says. And there, interesting, he says, verse 31, I buried Leah. Interesting. There I buried Leah. He, he doesn't say there I buried Rachel, which again, remember, because Rachel died quickly. But as this very special burial place is used for the patriarchs, Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, uh, you would think, again, if you remember Jacob's incredible affection and affinity towards Rachel, who was his precious you know, love of his life, that the first one he ever had fallen in love with, you would think when he died, he would say, you know what, I just bury me, bury me with Rachel. But interesting, he says, bury me with Leah. And I can't help but to wonder, again, as you consider the fact that Rachel died very early on and Leah continued to be his wife over the long stretch of a period of time who he lived with for many, many years. And I can't help but to wonder 
if having lived out that long journey in that marital relationship, if there wasn't then a greater connection and a greater appreciation of the marriage relationship that then developed actually between Jacob and Leah in a sense as they went through years and decades of a marriage relationship that bonded them to where ultimately that relationship became way more than he would ever imagine. And you know, it's just a wonderful thing to, to recognize there that here this appreciation came and where did it come from? You know, it didn't come from the infatuation and the strong emotions and all that, you know, powerful attraction and those are wonderful things that many times draw a couple together and that's what he had with Rachel. Rachel was, you know, the love of his life and just I mean and Leah however became his lifelong companion. The woman who he journeyed with for years and years and years and it was that ultimately that he found tremendous value in. And I just think it's a beautiful illustration sometimes of what really does matter ultimately in the marriage. He says, you know, when you bury me, he says, bury me there, interesting, where I buried Leah. Verse 32, he says, the field and the cave that is there were purchased from the sons of Heth. And when Jacob had finished commanding his sons, when he stopped saying these things, imagine this beautiful scene, how it unfolds. He drew his feet up into the bed, this father who had just pronounced prophetic things over all of his 12 sons. He just draws his feet up into his bed. He takes his last breath, and the Bible says, verse, uh, the last verse of 49, he was gathered to his people. What a beautiful description of the death experience of a man of God, of a, of a believer in the Lord. He was gathered to his people, indicating that his life went on. He drew his legs up in the bed. He breathed his last breath physically and the spirit separated from the body. There was the physical death experience. But notice, it doesn't say he ceased to exist. It says he was then gathered to his people. He went on to be with those who had died in faith, Abraham and Sarah. He was then gathered to his people. He transitioned from this life and he was gathered with the people of God and those who had gone on to be before him. And that's the exact same hope and assurance that you and I have. The Bible says to be in the New Testament, absent from the body as a believer is to be present with the Lord and to be gathered with the people of God in the eternal realm. What a wonderful hope we have in front of us. Well, chapter 50 at the death process just continues now. Then Joseph, now he, Jacob's celebrating. He's been gathered to his people, but you know, here, here's the other side of the death process. It's a wonderful transition. It's, you know, in an instant, all of a sudden, Jacob goes from being sickly and suffering and struggling to being gathered to his people and rejoicing and, you know, reunion and, and fellowship and eternal bliss. But on the, on the earthly side of the death process, notice there is pain and grief and tremendous sorrow. And this, unfortunately, is a part of the, the curse of death. It says, Joseph, his son, fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And again, it's just that moment where the loved one passes into eternity and he's just overwhelmed with grief. And he just falls on his father, kissing his face. Just a very dear, beautiful picture here, weeping over him in deep grief at the loss of of his father and Joseph commanded his servants the physicians interesting he had his own physicians there in Egypt shows you what kind of power and wealth and rank he had he commanded his servants the physicians to embalm his father so to prepare his body for death through the embalming process so the physicians embalmed him 40 days were required for him for such are the days required for those who are embalmed. And, you know, there's some very interesting, you know, facts, too, in regards to the embalming process of what the Egyptians did uh, to embalm or to, to mummify a body uh, in the ways that they did. You know, we spent time talking about them tonight, but just very interesting. And here, 40 days, it says, is what was required, it says, for those who are embalmed. It was quite an extensive process to prepare to preserve the body, even in that ancient culture, as they embalm the body. And it says, verse 3, the Egyptians mourned for him, take notice of this, 70 days. Now, we are told historically that when a pharaoh died in Egypt, again, the highest ranking one in the empire, pharaoh of Egypt, that when a pharaoh died, they mourned for a pharaoh for 72 days. 
So this gives you a picture of how prominent and well-respected Joseph apparently was in the Egyptian culture and how well-respected Jacob as just a simple old shepherd who had been living among them for just 17 years. And again, it was just a simple shepherd. But he apparently became so well-respected that he actually receives a period of mourning just two days shy to what a pharaoh of Egypt would get in that day. So again, just goes to show you how God can just use simple individuals who love God and walk with the Lord. The pharaoh gets 72 days of recognition when he dies, and this simple shepherd man who was just a man of God had such respect among the people in his community and in his society that they mourn for him almost equal to the amount of days as the Pharaoh himself when he dies. Verse 4 says, Now when the days of his mourning were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I found favor in your eyes, please speak in the hearing of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, Behold, I am dying in my grave, which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan, there you shall bury me. Remember we saw last time together that this was one of the requests of Jacob. He said, look, when I die, don't bury me here in Egypt. I know this is where I'm living presently, but my heart is in Canaan. It's in the promised land. This is where I'm dwelling, but it's not where my heart's attached to. My heart's attached to the promised land, so bury me there. He says, verse 5, now therefore, please, he's making requests of Pharaoh, Joseph is, he says, please let me go up and bury my father and I will come back. And Pharaoh said, go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So in essence, what you have here is Joseph now wanting to honor the last wishes of his father. And again, just this is beautiful to me, it shows you the incredible respect that he had for his father that he had a level of, that he honored his father's wishes to that extent that he said, you know what, look, my father has passed, so whatever I can do to give him the utmost dignity and to honor him in this farewell experience as I lay his body to rest, I want to do whatever I can to honor him. And you know what, I think in the death process, man, it is incredibly important that whatever has, and that we are able to set aside whatever and we're able to honor somebody in that moment. That, that should be our agenda, to honor a person, to honor their life and the value of their life and what they meant to us. And Joseph here, wanting to do that, goes to Pharaoh, sends a messenger to request to be able to leave Egypt. Again, remember he had a pretty prominent position there, administrator, second in command of the Egyptian empire. But he makes a request of Pharaoh, who he is still submitted to, to, to leave from the land and take the long journey all the way back to Canaan to be able to have the time to adequately bury his father there, to put him in that cave of Machpelah and to bury him with his ancestors. And again, I, I love the heart of Joseph here because here's Joseph. He's a man of incredible power, a man of incredible authority. But notice, though he's a man of authority, he still keeps himself under authority. He goes to Pharaoh and he makes requests. And this, again, I think is just always so important. You know, Joseph was a powerful man. He had a prominent position. But he always still, though he carried authority, kept himself under authority. And you see him properly going to someone whom he submitted himself to Pharaoh and saying, may I go and bury my father. And he says, and I will come back. I realize I have a job here. I realize I have a commitment. He says, I, I, I want to be respectful of that. May I have your permission to have leave to go take care of this personal business? And then I will come back and fulfill my responsibilities here in Egypt. Pharaoh grants him, again, because of the respect that he had. He says, go, honor your father's wishes as he made you swear. So Joseph went up, verse 7, to bury his father. And with him went up, take notice of the language here, with Joseph went up all the servants of Pharaoh. All the servants of Pharaoh. So all the statesmen, all the nobility in the land, again, to understand what this singer, all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his house, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the house of Joseph and his brothers, his father's house, only the little ones, the flocks and herds, they left in the land of Goshen. And there 
went up with him both chariots and horsemen, and it was, the Bible says, a very great gathering. So, I mean, this is like the funeral of a statesman. You understand what I'm saying? All of Pharaoh... All of Pharaoh's nobility, all the cabinet members, all the high-ranking, prominent, superior people, all the nobility in the land, this huge entourage accompanies Joseph and Jacob's family, all the sons, to go back to Canaan to go through this memorial process. As they go back, it says, a very great gathering. And they came, verse 10, to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, and they mourned there with a great and very solemn lamentation. And they probably went to a threshing floor because threshing floors usually were flat areas. They were elevated, which would provide lots of space for a gathering. So again, just a, a practical place to come together with a very large gathering to kind of hold this memorial service together. And he observed, it says, seven days of mourning for his father. And when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a deep mourning of the Egyptians. Therefore, its name was called Abel Mizraim, which is beyond the Jordan. So his sons did for him just as he had commanded them, for his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him there in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, which Abraham had bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite as property for a burial place, and after he had buried his father, Joseph returned, notice, to Egypt, he and his brothers and all who went up with him to bury his father. So take notice. He takes time to grieve. He takes time to mourn. He makes sure that he honorably buries his father and pays due respect to him, and there's a great amount of grieving that's going on in the whole process but take note, verse 14, it says, after he buried his father, what did he do? It says, he then returned to Egypt and all who were with him. Point being this, there was a time of grief, there was a time of mourning, it was proper, it was appropriate, but he did not then remain in a prolonged condition of just grieving and mourning. He, in a sense, and I'm not saying the mourning stopped, he returned back to his everyday affairs. He went back to living. And see, it, when the death process happens, it is difficult and it's painful and it's hard. And there needs to be a time where we grieve and we mourn and we release emotion and, and we take the time to process that. That's important. There's a time to mourn. There's a time to grieve. But there also comes a time there when even though the pain never goes away and it's just a process of adjusting the rest of our lives, there comes a time where then we need to return back to living our lives. And we need to realize that the healthiest thing we can do after a season and duration of grief is to realize, you know what, it's time to return back to living now. And I need to live on and I need to continue to live. Again, is that pain always going to be there? Is it going to resurface through the well of tears and the memories come back? Yes. But I think sometimes one of the greatest detriments people can bring upon themselves is they never move beyond the grieving and mourning process and they never return back to what they were doing prior and go on living their life. Sometimes the healthiest thing to do is to return back to our place, to our responsibilities, and to go on functioning and living, in a sense, that can then be one of the most helpful and therapeutic things to then take us through the next season of life rather than sitting idle and having too much time to think and just the thoughts and the awareness and the grief of it, it just overwhelms us and it, it heaps people then into depression and just makes them just lose purpose and reason for their own life. And I think Joseph here shows a very good example in that, yes, he grieved, but after he buried his father, he then returned back to Egypt with the rest of the family. He went back to his duties, back to his responsibilities there in his regular everyday life. In verse 15, look what happens now. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, perhaps Joseph will hate us and may actually repay us for all the evil which we did for them, did for to him. So look what happens. After their father dies, the brothers start thinking again, and they're thinking, hmm, 
you know, as long as dad was around, there was kind of a strong incentive and an influence for Joseph to not pay us back for all the wrong things we did to him because he knew that would just break dad's heart. And, 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 and while dad was around, he, you know, he was kind of the buffer between us relationally. You know, sometimes some people can become like that. You know, sometimes between siblings, you know, the, the parent is the buffer in the relationship or the, the one and, and then the parent passes away. Now all that's left is, you know, the siblings or whatever. And, and they're beginning to think now, oh, man, he doesn't have anything. What if all of a sudden now those thoughts of, you know, anger or revenge start to well up inside of me thinks, you know what, who cares? You know, dad's dead now. He's not going to know. That's it. I'm going to really, you know, lay into him. And they start to worry and think. And you know what? Maybe all this stuff about he forgives us and he still loves us. Maybe all of that was even just a big show that he was just doing. And he was just waiting for the right moment once dad passed off the scene. And then he's really going to reveal his true colors if you know what i mean he's going to let his his genuine intentions out because he truly hates us and he's going to now repay us for all the evil which we did to him verse 16 look what they do so they sent messengers to joseph saying before your father died he commanded saying thus you shall say to joseph i beg you please forgive the trespass of your brothers and their sin for they did evil to you. Now, please forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of your father. Now, did Jacob really say that? We really don't know. Uh, knowing these brothers, it's very likely that, that Jacob never said this. And they're just, again, lear they learn how to play their hands. So they say, hey, send a messenger and say, hey, uh, by the way, uh, when your father was getting ready to pass, one of the times when I was, you know, bringing in his toast and coffee to him in his last few days, he said, hey, do me a favor. In case my sons have some issues after I die, can you make sure to pass a message along to Joseph and tell him that my dying wish <laughs> is that he would please forgive his brothers and don't ever repay them for all the evil, horrific things that they did to him. And uh, again, is that possible? Maybe he really did say this. Uh, maybe he didn't say this and they're making it up. The more tragic thing is what? Is these brothers are still struggling with a guilty conscience over something that they have done in making a mistake in the past where they hurt and wounded someone else and prior mistakes they made where they did evil and wrong things that wounded someone else that they loved and their guilty conscience is still plaguing them and plaguing them so much that what are they doing now? Now they're struggling and questioning the forgiveness that Joseph said he's already offered to them, right? Did Joseph not multiple times reiterate to them, I love you, I forgive you, don't be afraid, it's okay. And, and he embraced them and he tried to lavish his love and forgiveness upon them and to assure them he wasn't angry or embittered to them. Remember he said, look, you didn't really send me here, God sent me here and don't be afraid. Come here, I want to take care of you. And, and he's expressed his forgiveness, and yet what are they doing? They're questioning and doubting the genuineness and the, the truth of his forgiveness. And we look at this, and is this not, however, what we do sometimes even as Christians? You know, somehow an event happens, and we think all of a sudden now the terms have changed, and, and, and where at one point we were very confident, sure, you know, God loves us and God forgives us, but then some instance or circumstance happens, and all of a sudden we start questioning the love of God. We start questioning the forgiveness of God. And though he's assured us, and he's spoken to us clearly, look, you're forgiven. You're going to heaven. I love you. Nothing's going to separate you from my love. But then some things happen, or we start to have some thoughts, and we get on a guilt trip, or we make a mistake, or we start to have prior thoughts of things we did in the past, and we get all condemned, and we start to question the forgiveness of Jesus. And we start to worry about the love of God for us and how he feels towards us. And, and this is what these brothers are doing here. Please forgive us, even though he already said he had forgiven him. And look at Joseph's response, verse 17. It says, Joseph wept when they spoke to him. This brought Joseph to tears. It broke Joseph's heart that his brothers did not accept his forgiveness for them. It broke his heart. It totally caused him to be grieved because they did not just believe and receive his love and his forgiveness for them. And again, as Joseph many times is a picture of Jesus in the Bible, I can't help but to think 
that the times when we question the Lord's love for us, the times when you may question Jesus's forgiveness for you, I think that breaks the Lord's heart because that was a huge price he paid to extend his forgiveness. And he says, by faith alone, you're forgiven, you're washed, you're clean. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And when we question and doubt the promises of God in regards to his love and his forgiveness and his grace, I think that breaks the Lord's heart. It just totally, because he doesn't want us to wrestle with that. He doesn't want us to struggle with doubt and condemnation. He wants us to have that assurance of his love and forgiveness. Verse 18, then his brothers also went, notice as this process is happening, they go up and they then fall down. Again, they're prostrating themselves. They feel so you know, guilt-ridden. They prostrate themselves and they said, behold, we are your servants. And what are they trying to look Whatever we have to do, you know, we'll repay. We'll be your servants. Again, what are they trying to do? They're trying to earn his approval. They don't have to earn his approval. And don't we do that when we doubt sometimes too? We doubt the forgiveness of the Lord by faith alone. We doubt the love and grace of God by our faith alone and what he's just said to us and assured us. And we think, well, maybe if I work and do some things, I can get myself back in good graces. So if I really do some good works, I'll, I'll kind of, I'll swing the scale back the other way. And, and, and we don't have to do that. Now we're, we're creating a works gospel. We're creating a works relationship. And they come, they're, again, they're kind of proud. Look, we're your servants, whatever we have to do. And Joseph, just verse 19, lovingly assures them. He says, look, do not be afraid. For am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. In order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. So Joseph, again, reinforces the truths that he had spoken to them before. He reassures them of the, the, the things that he's already declared to them. They just need to hear it again. They need to be reassured of his hard intention towards them. And some of the things he says here to me are just truly beautiful of, of a man whose heart is right with God, who's a man of humility, who's a man you know that, that, that recognizes the authority of God in his life. I mean, look what he says in verse 19 initially. He says... Don't be afraid. And then he says, am I in the place of God? Now, in one sense, think about it. The place and position Joseph was in, he had quite a bit of power and prominence. And he was in a position where he could very easily and very thoroughly repay them for what they did to him. I mean, he had the potential in his position and the power and capacity of where he was to really punish them and make them experience the full brunt of repayment for what they did to him and really mete it out to him. And yet Joseph says, but you know what? That would meet me usurping a place of authority that I have no boundary crossing into. He says, look, I'm not in the place of God. I'm not the ultimate authority. I may have the opportunity to bring about revenge. I may have even the human capacity to repay you somehow, but he says, if I do that, the greater grievance is not what I'm doing to you, it's what I'm doing before God. I'm stepping into God's place. And he says, that's a worse thing for me to do. That'd be a greater crime. And you know, I think we really need to remember at times that there are certain occasions in our lives where we find ourselves and it's a very subtle, tempting thing to be in a spot where we can act almost like we're God in a situation. And we have, even just in our earthly, the ability to, you know, bring about revenge or repayment or punish somebody or get back at somebody or do something or, or exercise our authority because we have in a way to bring control over someone else's life. And I think we really need to be careful and realize, look, there comes a point where it is not my in a sense, you know, right to step into place, the place of God in someone else's life. I need to let God be God. If God wants to bring revenge upon a person, God's more than, he's God though, that's, that's his boundary. If God wants to deal with a person, that's his prerogative to do that. But we need to be careful there where we acknowledge God's superiority and authority and that we don't cross over in our actions or things we do in a way that's unhealthy and start to play God in another person's life, judging them or treating them in certain ways that really we have no right doing as just a fellow sinful human being that's just like them in many ways. 
He says verse 20 as well, but as for you, again, there's another reiteration of what we saw, or you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about this day as it is the saving of lives. Again, Joseph was able to sit back and say, you know what, yeah, what you did, it was wrong. It was evil. You, you didn't sugarcoat. He said it was evil. It was wrong. It was horrific what you did to me. But he said, I am humble enough to recognize that though it was painful and difficult to realize that God superintended over my life and God still orchestrated ultimately through what wrong things happened, something very wonderful through my life where he took what evil and hurtful things you did and he turned it around and he actually used it for a good purpose so that I would be here in a place where I might save not only multiple different nations but even preserve the line of the Messiah. He says, God took what you meant for evil and, and, and he meant it and turn it around for good. And you know, what a great promise there. I, you know, I think that's something that sometimes we all have to hold on to in our own lives. And we need to keep that perspective. Maybe there has been something very evil that's happened to you. Maybe something very wrong has happened to you in your childhood or in your life. And genuinely, somebody did some really evil things. Somebody did something really wrong. And in that moment, you have to be willing to step back. I have to be willing to take a step back in faith and trust the sovereignty of God that God can still superintend and that God can even take what somebody else means for evil and actually use it to bring about something good in my life still. And to trust that God's able to do that is an incredible depth of maturity, but it's, it's also a very wonderful place to be because it releases us from a lot of the stresses and anxieties and kind of that victim mentality that we can fall into that really just paralyzes us a lot of times because we fail to see how God turned something around from evil to make it good. Verse 21, he says, Now therefore do not be afraid. I will provide for you and for your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph dwelt in Egypt, he and his father's household. And Joseph lived 110 years. So he lived, in essence, another 50 plus years, about 54 or so years past the point uh, even of his father Jacob's death. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation. The children of Machir, the sons of Manasseh, were also brought up on Joseph's knees, like a grandpa, great-grandpa to the third generation, says. And Joseph said to his brethren, I am dying, but God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land to the land which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. And then Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel, saying to them, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old and they embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Now, as Joseph's dying, notice same sentiments, same desire as his father Jacob. He says here as he's about to die to the people of Israel who are still left and maybe some of the brothers have died at this point, but to the descendants of Israel that are around him, he makes them take an oath and promise that they will ultimately take his bones and bring them back to Canaan. And notice he says in verse 24, he says, God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land. And notice back to the land he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he says, he's going to visit you and therefore carry my bones up from there. Now again, He's speaking of something that will not happen for 400 years. But yet again, as the Spirit of God is revealing to him, this is something that is being said in complete faith. In fact, uh, Hebrews chapter 11, this is one of the things that gets uh, Joseph into that hall of faith. Listen to Hebrews 11 verse 22. It says, By faith Joseph, when he was dying made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. So as Joseph is dying, the Spirit of God prompts his heart and in faith, and he says, you know what? He says, I don't know when it's going to happen, but I know and I sense in my heart and the gift of faith is stirred him. He says, I sense that God's gonna, there's going to be a visitation of God. And God's going to come and he's going to bring you out of this land and he's going to bring you into the land of promise. Now, it wouldn't happen for 400 years, but by faith, 
He's able to see something in the future. He's able to speak with conviction about what he senses God is going to do in the future. And he gives to them an admonition. He even says that he gives them instructions concerning what to do with his bones. Take my bones and bring them back there. And again, to me, what a beautiful thing to see that this is why faith is so valuable in our lives. From our first breath in the moment of conversion to our dying breath, when we depart and experience the fulfillment of our salvation as we enter into the presence of the Lord. Hebrews 11 says, Without faith, it's impossible to please God because those who come to him must believe that he is and he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Because faith is that element of our spiritual life that allows us to see those things that aren't seen, to be able to believe what God is going to do ahead, to be able to, with confidence, speak with assurance of what we sense God is going to do and, and to believe and to foresee ahead what God's plans and God's intention are. We, we, we foresee by faith. And we don't live by sight. The Bible says we live by faith. And it's by faith that we're then able even to at times give instruction. He gives, Look, this is what I want you to do by faith. This is what God's directing you to do because this is what God's ultimately going to do. And to me, just what a beautiful thing to see the value of faith and this dying breath. Joseph here speaking of what will happen 400 years down the road when God will bring the children of Israel through a visitation out of the land of Egypt and bring them back to the land of Canaan. And of course, that does what? Sets the stage for exactly where we head into next time in the book of Exodus, where 400 years later, after a time period of great difficulty and bondage, a visitation of God comes to pass, and exactly what Joseph said here on his dying bed is exactly what God starts to do and fulfill as he raises up Moses and brings them out of the land. So the book of Genesis, you know, we start with God creating, breathing life, you know, breathe into Adam, his nostrils, the breath of life. God brings about life. It starts with creation and God giving life and fellowship to man. And where do we end? <laughs> At the end of Genesis, we end in death and a coffin. Uh, you know, talk about the full gamut and what uh, God's plan is. But the wonderful thing is here, you know, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And here we see the wages of sin is death. We end with two funerals. But yet as we go into the book of Exodus, we then see a picture of God's salvation and how God raises up a deliverer and leads them out uh, and takes them into the promised land.